this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen. Most states, nations, even regions have a strapline. You know, a few words under the name by way of description. Florida, the Sunshine State. Brunei, abode of peace. USA, the land of the free. Israel, startup nation. Israel, startup nation. Did Saul Singer and Dan Senor think for one moment their best-selling book, Startup Nation, would reframe Israel's brand, even its perception right across the world? The book describes our guest today as one of Israel's legendary business ambassadors, who's taken on a role that, in any other country, would typically belong to the Chamber of Commerce, the Minister for Trade, or even the Foreign Secretary. Welcome, John Medved. CEO of Our Crowd. Israel's Scale of Nation on Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Our Crowd, a better way to invest in Israel's startups. Today, it's much less of a startup nation and much more of a scale up nation, meaning that uh, Israel, you know, we've always been known for our innovation capability, for our ability to see things that others don't see. But what is it that drives Israel's extraordinary economic miracle and investability? In 2008, historian Neil Ferguson observed Israel had created 9,500 patents compared to Iran's 50. And in the 20-year stretch up to the millennium, Israel's 7,600 compared with 370 for all Arab countries combined. Is it the urgency to defend and survive? No, says John. It's much, much, much deeper than that. You know, which is a phrase in Hebrew from what are called Pirkei Avot, okay, the sayings of our fathers that says, who is wise? He who sees the new moon to something being created. The relationship between Jews and creation goes way beyond Genesis and our, it is very deep in our DNA. We view ourselves as partners with God in creation. Our narrative of creation is not that God finished the work in his six days and then rested and it's over and done with, but actually the, the opposite, which is that he just got started. And it's up to us as, as humans and people and as Jews in particular to continue the work of creation, to fix creation with tikkun olam. As the world goes on a drive to change the climate, Israel sees its role less in cutting emissions, though important, but more in the innovation to deal with billions of people beyond, a message Boris Johnson understood loud and clear from Israel's president, Isaac Herzog. And I must say that we're also, we saw your leadership coming out of the COP26 in Glasgow. And I want to thank Israel for what you did there. You were great. You guys. Yes, so uh, I will deliver it to our government. Thank you very much. And it shows also that Britain has developed its own narrative and leadership in the world arena. And I know we have... Our Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, he just went to the COP 26 conference in Glasgow. And I think he made a great statement. Look, Israel will do its part to cut emissions and to get in line with what's necessary to save the planet for each and every country that cares. Our role is different. It's not just to cut the emissions. We have to move 
much of our startup economy into solving these huge problems that face humanity. And our role in terms of cutting emissions will not really save the planet. We're too small, okay? But our role in figuring out technology solutions for energy, for next generation food production, for carbon sequestration and others, that's where we can play an outsized role. Israel has an acute need for your skills, whatever they may be. If you're a young person listening to this podcast and you're sitting in, you know, uh, somewhere in London or you're, or you're sitting in the States or you're sitting in South Africa, wherever you are, and you're asking yourself, you know, should I go to Israel economically? Is it a, a place of opportunity? How am I going to do? You are nuts if you don't get your butt over here. Okay, because simply there is no better place to go make your fortune, both in terms of creating money and wealth, but more importantly, in terms of creating meaning in your life. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State, North America, Europe, the Commonwealth, the whole of the Middle East. The world is listening. John Medved, a warm welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Hey, hi there, Johnny. Great to be with you. John, it is always exciting to talk about Israel as a startup nation. I have been to Israel, to the Azrael Tower, to see Cyto Reason, a remarkable creator, which define diseases and try and find commonality between the most surprising of diseases. Professor Shai Shen Or, he's the chief scientist and co-founder of Cyto Reason and head of the Systems Immunology and Precision Medicine Lab at the Technion Faculty of Medicine. So Cyto Reason is all about unmasking the biology and revealing uh, the kind of new discoveries in biology and how they relate to disease and their treatments. Uh, we uh, help our customer base, the pharma industry, develop uh, new treatments uh, and uh, through, throughout the process of drug development to improve disease. This ingenuity is not unique to Israel, but it is a world leader in incubating great ideas for the world. Um, it's true, uh, but, but today it's much less of a startup nation and much more of a scale-up nation, meaning that Israel, you know, we're, we've always been known for our innovation capability, for our ability to see things that others don't see. Now that, you know, shouldn't be a surprise for the Jewish State podcast listener, because you know that which is a uh, phrase in Hebrew from what are called Pirkei Avot, okay, the sayings of our fathers that says, who is wise? He who sees the Hanolad could mean anything from the, the new moon to something being created. But the bottom line is that the relationship between Jews and creation goes way beyond Genesis. And, you know, but on the other hand, starts there and our, it is very deep in our DNA. We view ourselves as partners with God in creation. Our narrative of creation is not that God finished the work in his six days and then rested and it's over and done with, but actually the, the opposite, which is that he just got started and it's up to us. As, as humans and people, and as Jews in particular, to continue the work of creation, 
to fix creation with tikkun olam. And so therefore, the fact that the Jewish state is busy leading the world in so many disciplines, not just companies like Cyto Reason in the medical area, of which we have 50 investments on our platform at our crowd, but in climate change and new forms of energy and in mobility and in food technology and agrotech and drones and cybersecurity and the cloud. There are now almost 10,000 startups in Israel, but it's not just these startups. It's uh, we're approaching a hundred unicorns who are companies that are essentially valued at a billion dollars or more, but are not yet traded publicly. Last year, there were 178 merger and acquisition uh, transactions and IPOs, of which 23 of those IPOs or initial public offerings were in the United States. And what's happening now is Israel is, is growing so fast in terms of dollars invested. Last year in Israel, there was 25.6 billion invested in Israeli startups. Now, when you take that number, compare it to the year before, there was a little over 10 billion. So that's a growth of 150% year to year. That's what happens when a fast company grows, but no one has seen a ecosystem grow that quickly. When you look at it and you compare that amount of money to what has been invested in Israel in charity, okay, or with the US military aid, and let's say you combine all the charity, which is about $3 billion, and the US military aid, which is a little under $4 billion, including the special allocations for Iron Dome, that's $7 billion. So at the moment, we're almost 4x, <laughs> four times the amount of that money being invested in startups. And what it's done now is it's driven the Israeli economy through the roof, so much so that Tel Aviv has become the world's most expensive city to live in, okay, which is either good or bad, depending upon how you look at things. Well, it's probably bad news for those of us who still plan to make Aliyah, because it means that almost no one in the diaspora can afford to live in Tel Aviv. But it's all very exciting uh, news and, and beautifully presented, if I might say, with the most profound of investment plans from, should we say, due diligence to due diligence, may I say, <laughs> um, at the beginning there. So I've heard this term before, you know, scale up nation. Now we're at the next stage of startup nation. But that shouldn't discourage young entrepreneurs, often out of the army, often out of a trip to Thailand when they come back to Israel at age 20 with that profound idea that they perhaps got while serving with their brothers and sisters in the military to start things up because the world continues to rotate. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. I mean, look, I, I've been doing this for 40 years. When I, I came to Israel as a young man, um, I was very, very lucky to get involved in a technology business is really my first real job. Right. My my late father was a rocket scientist who had moved on to fiber optics and uh, I joined him in a startup and I started looking for money here in Israel. There was only one problem. There wasn't any. Right. In other words, when I started with my dad, it was 1982. 
there wasn't a single venture capital fund in the country. It took four years later in 1986, by which time I had already raised money from a, a Israeli corporation for the first venture fund to be established. Uh, venture capital, of course, is the uh, asset class that provides the fuel for all these startups. People collect money and then uh, invest it in startups in return for a piece of their equity and the hopeful ultimate profits. Today, this venture capital engine is what is driving this $25.6 billion of investment. Fully 10% of the Israeli workforce is now in high tech, but that doesn't tell the story because for each person on the front lines of high tech, there are two or three others who are supporting him. And whether they're involved in transportation or food preparation or insurance or marketing or construction or travel services, you name it, okay, the beating heart of Israel's economy is high tech. And it's a good thing too, because the kids today are just unbelievable in terms of their, not only their in innovative skills, but their lack of fear, okay? I have four children and thank God, 11 grandchildren. And my four kids, all either they themselves or all of their friends are simply in the middle of all this. And whether I've got one who's a, a lawyer for startups, my oldest son, Moshe, uh, my second son, Yossi, is bu building sort of a startup platform for funding next generation Israeli content, which is now starting to fly, including things like Fauda and Shtisel and whatnot. My son Itamar is uh, into crypto and also uh, medical. So he'll be investigating the, 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 the interface between cryptocurrency and your health. Don't know how that's gonna work. Uh, and then my my younger baby, she's now I guess 27. Nina is a internet singing and entertainment star, together with her husband Yoni and Yonina. So my kids are all there, but all of their friends who are these 30 something, you know, some cases even late 20s, they either have startups, they're setting up venture capital funds. Okay, you know we have a a uh, very close friend named Judah Taub was uh, Yossi's best friend. You know, he's the son of Daniel Taub, who was the, uh, you know, uh, ambassador to uh, the court of St. James from Israel. He's already now in his third venture fund. He's 32 or 33 years old, okay, working with the guys from Lansdowne. I mean, it's just unbelievable what is going on in the country. So you've got, if you're a young person listening to this, podcast and you're sitting in you know uh somewhere in london or you're or you're sitting in the states or you're sitting in south africa wherever you are and you're asking yourself you know should i go to israel economically is it a, a place of opportunity how am i going to do you are nuts if you don't get your butt over here okay because simply there is no better place to go make your fortune both in terms of creating uh, uh, money and wealth, but more importantly, in terms of creating meaning in your life and finding a place to build a family and to be part of the ongoing saga, you know, the very exciting saga of Jewish history, because it's happening here. 
And yeah. if you can come here young and early, do so. Well, that's your crowd. What about our crowd? <laughs> An equity crowd. You wanted me to talk about my business? <laughs> yeah, let's let's do that. Mazel tov on all the connections and friendships. And, you know, there is no doubt that Israel is becoming a maturer society. I mean, really, it's uh, it's only 73 or 74 years old, but um, our crowd. Um, so the, the, the idea behind our crowd was essentially how can people from outside of Israel connect to this unbelievable story? Because I've been telling this story for decades, literally as soon as I got into the high-tech business, my degree is originally in history. And I became sort of, you know, one of the leading house historians of the Israeli tech scene. And I would go around speaking about it and explaining in its very nascent, you know, stages, how amazing it was and how it was going to boom. And I had a lot of friends who said, Medved, you know, you're just an old Zionist propagandist. Like, do you really believe that you know, this thing is going to take off the way you're, and I said, yes, people should be investing in it. And it was very interesting because most of the early investors in Israel tech were not Jewish. Okay. Because many of the Jews had invested early, early in Israel before, you know, in their cousin Yossi's carburetor factory or some towel factory down in the middle of the Negev where Minister Sapir had, 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 had convinced wealthy people to do things. And the reality is that they had had enough, right? They, they said, look, we'll make money the way we do in the diaspora, and then we'll give it to Israel. We're not going to go invest. And boy, was that a mistake. So you look, for example, at Jewish wealth in various foundations and whatnot, of which they're you know, arguably are, you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars under management, both family offices and charitable foundation. Less than 1% of that corpus is invested in Israeli tech, which is a huge, horrible mistake. So what happened is that big organizations, okay, big non-Jewish pension funds, insurance companies, banks, Okay, they're the ones who led this investment and were rewarded handsomely. And they didn't do it out of Zionism. They did it because it was a smart investment. People like Bill Gates, last time I checked, is not Jewish, except when he looks around and he says that Israel is about as important as the U.S. is to Microsoft. He knows what he's talking about. Okay, and so this is what's driven this. Turns out that when I set up our crowd, I wanted to be able to finally go to Jews, non-Jews, and I'm very proud today that about, you know, 80% of our platform has no connection with our people at all, okay? Make it simple so that if you want to invest in an energy startup or a cybersecurity startup or a food startup, whether it's in Israel or elsewhere, you simply go to ourcrowd.com. It's literally minutes to, you know, uh, sign up, and then you will be able to select from hundreds of investment opportunities that we have curated and that we have selected and gone through what's called due diligence, you mentioned before, where we check these investments out and then we put our own money in and we set terms, because remember, these are private companies that are not yet listed on exchanges. And then 
we invite our crowd to invest on the same terms that we're putting our money in. And the moment we're managing close to $2 billion in assets that have been invested over the years, we have 300 companies that we've made investments in, 50 have had exits. We're providing also the option to invest in funds, which are uh, over three dozen of them. And uh, our growth is pretty phenomenal. We added this year over 100,000 new investors who are registered on our site. And that's compared to about 25,000 in the year prior. And we've also grown our assets year to year, the additional assets by over 100%. So we welcome your listeners to join us at our crowd. Now, one of the most profound books to have changed the perception of Israel, not just internally, but around the world, has got to be Saul Singer and Dan Senor's bestseller, Startup Nation. We've talked about that term. Now we're at Scale Up Nation. And they described you, very importantly, for your uh, PR and for your image uh, around the world in a, this profound book, one of Israel's legendary ambassadors in business, taking on a role that in any other country would typically belong to the Chamber of Commerce or the Ministry of Trade or even Foreign Secretary. And I'm 75 episodes into this Mishagas, my, uh, my, my podcast. It's three <laughs> years old. And the first one was with two brigadier generals who took it upon themselves to become startup diplomats, free of government, to go around the world and try and negotiate peace for Israel with their um, new state solution, Brigadier General Amir Avivi and Sergeant Benjamin Anthony. And this started off the idea of my podcast being about Israel being a flat society. You know, you can be an outlier. You don't have to be centralized in government to make a massive involvement, whether it be diplomatic or commercial. It doesn't all run through the government. And I think that flatness in society is a profound concept for Jews around the world and Israel particularly. I think we're we're very blessed by an attitude which has been sort of uh, in a coarse way described as in, in Israel, what goes is kol mamzer melech, which means every, excuse me, bastard is a king. Uh, we, we don't take orders very well, right? If you've ever tried to manage Israelis, whether it's in the army or in you know business or in any kind of life, just talk to our people in politics and see how easy it is to manage a government or to man. I mean, it's just impossible. Israelis don't take orders. We don't serve very well. The quality of our customer service leaves much to be desired. You know, it's getting, you're, better. It's getting better. It's getting better, but it's just it's not part of who we are. No. If you want, you know, good service, there are plenty of countries who will give you that. If you want innovative ideas and groundbreaking technology and chutzpah aplenty, come to us. Okay, that's what we know how to do. So it, it turns out that it's not surprising to me that we we go and we create, we have a very, very healthy uh, NGO, you know, uh, community, the non-governmental organizations, people that are always creating new charities and new political lobbies. And, and people, thank God, take on challenges that, in other countries, everybody relies on the government. You can't rely on the government. 
It's not right. Okay, the government is not the end all and be all. And therefore creating private sector people who are busy promoting Israel in different ways, and whether it's in peacemaking or in you know promoting high tech or you know talking about our culture. Okay, there are so many wonderful sites that your you know listeners can go visit, such as the No Camels website, which was put together by young people at uh, IDC, which is today the Reichman University, Israel 21C, which was put together by a group of philanthropists on the West Coast doing great work. And it, it goes on and on in terms of the number of organizations who are into this. And I, and I think it, it's important because today the question is, what is our brand going to be as a country, as a people? And for the too long, we were branded by the conflict, right? People, you know, if they did a quick sort of, you know, word matching exercise, you know, what comes to mind? You'd say Israel conflict, you know, Israel, Palestinians, that really, that's what we want our identity to be, okay? And I would much rather be branded, you know, literally that book, Saul and Dan's book, they branded a nation. It is now Startup Nation. You go around the world and say, describe Israel. And they'll say, Startup Nation, okay? And it's incredible that it's, it's, it's not just the book, because the book reflects the reality, but this has become a definition of who we are. The problem is that it comes with responsibility. Yes. It's not just good to say, well, we're making all this money, you know, invest with us. We have to lead. And so I think our prime minister, Naftali Bennett, full disclosure, I was his first seed investor in his company, Sayota, which was in the uh, cybersecurity back before he started politics at age 27. He just went to the COP26 conference in Glasgow. And I think he made a great statement, which is that, look, Israel will do its part to cut emissions and to get in line with what's necessary to save the planet for each and every country that cares. And many, many are, are, are starting to do so, except that our role is different. It's not just to cut the emissions. We have to move much of our startup economy into solving these huge problems that face humanity. And our role in terms of cutting emissions will not really save the planet. We're too small, okay? But our role in figuring out technology solutions for energy, for next generation food production, for carbon sequestration and others, that's where we can play an outsized role. It was a message uh, which Boris Johnson referenced to President Isaac Herzog in the reception at number 10, which I witnessed with my own ears uh, about what a fabulous job Israel had done at COP26. And it was one of the messages which President Herzog delivered to Johnson and he understood it implicitly that's great to hear. When you talk about responsibility, when you, uh, you know, generate revenue, one thing that has been going on in Israel, perhaps for a little bit too long, is the wealth creation has created a system where mobility is becoming a bit more difficult. You know, this is one of the growth pains of a maturing economy. 
for the less connected in Israel, perhaps for people who are lesser talented, that doesn't mean to say they can't fulfill great things with what they do. It could be the law of the jungle. You know, there are people doing well, but we must make sure that it's not at the expense of a majority of other people. Growth pains in Israeli society, John, let's talk about that. Yeah, look, I think that one has to be very careful because when you hear how well Israel's doing in the high tech and how much money people are making, then one of the conclusions, a wrong conclusion would be, hey, I don't need to give charity to Israel anymore. They're, they're, they're a wealthy country. Good luck, you know, good on you, bye, okay? And that's not true. Right, that's uh, misreading the situation because, as I think you point, you know, pointed out correctly, there's still large segments of Israeli society that are that are not with it, that are living below poverty line. Uh, they estimate that as many as a quarter of Israeli children, okay, uh, uh, are 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 still living in poverty. So it's incumbent on the government to start with, but also on the rest of the of the society to figure out ways that we can increase that exposure to this incredibly interesting story and it starts with education it starts with empowerment giving people hope and whether it's bringing haredim into the story okay which is the fastest growing part of our society ultra orthodox so that they can understand the torah en kemach en torah okay there's not you know, literally bread and, and, and dough, okay? You're not going to have Torah study. And the way to make bread and dough is to get into tech. So there are many, many way, uh, ways that we're working on that to bring the Arab residents of Israel into this story. And it turns out now that at Israel's Technion, uh, over 20% of the st- student population is Arab, which is extraordinary and, and bodes well for the future. To bring... Ethiopians into the story. Ethiopians, I think, have made huge progress since most of them coming to Israel in the 80s and 90s, but we still have a way to go. For example, my vice president of engineering running a 65-person team is a guy named Eli Rata, who's an Ethiopian who walked out of the Sudan, okay, and now runs a high-tech R&D operation. So, there's lots of that going on. And ultimately, by the way, the biggest problem is women, okay? That women are woefully underrepresented in terms of leadership of high-tech companies, venture capital investors, and there's a huge gender gap, which I think, so, you know, and, th- and this is not just important in terms of justice and equality, but the biggest problem facing the Israeli tech sector is we're running out of people. Yeah. Okay, we don't we're 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 short at the moment, tens of thousands of jobs. I'll, you know, we're going to have a, a a job fair sponsored by our crowd. We have four thousand three hundred jobs listed on our website who are for our companies, and our companies again are in Israel and around the world. Okay, we are looking for people. You know, as we say in Hebrew, benerot. You know, with with uh, candles, making making reference to the, you know, bidikat chametz. You know, you know, in, in in Hebrew, every phrase or joke is redolent with the past. But the bottom line is, we're looking desperately 
for people, you know, who want to take these jobs. And we urge people to come because I think that the um, the one of the great untapped reservoirs of talent is in the diaspora. And we have many, many people, I think, who could come and, you know, make Aliyah, live in Israel, take part in this, especially the young people who are educated in these technology disciplines. If you're an engineer or a software programmer or a product manager, you know, it's not like, are you going to get a job? It's, you know, can you handle 25 job offers without <laughs> going crazy? Because wow. that's the reality, you know, in the country. But it's not just among Jews. We need to actually open it. We need to be mature enough and confident enough to say, you know what? We should take in 50,000 or 100,000 non-Jews who want to come and work here in the startup scale-up nation to help us grow this. Because if you look at what drives Silicon Valley, it's that influx of immigrants. And unfortunately, while we definitely would like Jewish immigrants to come, we need to bring people from all over the world who want to build companies with us. I'm absolutely delighted to say that uh, what you've just said chimed with a couple of episodes uh, of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I spoke to Dr. Nachman Shai, who said the Haredim were starting to pursue secular pursuits in terms of paying for their Torah studies, or at least the senior member of the family supporting the rest of the family. He talked about Beta Yisrael, the Ethiopian community making you know, new empowered moves, and even the Arab society as well. Uh, which is obviously uh, most welcome. And indeed, I spoke to the great Danny Limore, who at the time was more anonymous, he being the mastermind in Mossad, who between 1978 and 83 organized the Red Sea Spies, amongst other courageous events. I would love to see that as part of the Israeli school curriculum, because it is one of the most profound stories of uh, Israel's great success. Talk about bringing the diaspora in. It was the most uh, extreme form of, of doing that through the Sudanese camps, uh, one of the most extraordinary stories and uh, only in Israel. Uh, may I ask, John, about one other very important sub-brand of New Israel? Startup Nation, Scale-Up Nation are two uh, terms, but there's another one as well, which has really very tangible concepts and again, changing the worldview of Israel, and that is the Abraham Accords, because the Gulf and Israel, they're amazing friends now. And it's its a warm friendship. It's, uh, as Dory Gold told me, he said, I have been pleasantly surprised by the durability, he said, of the Abraham Accords. I'm less surprised. I spoke to Mansour Abulhul I, I, here in the UK, the ambassador to the United Kingdom from the UAE. I mean, you know, it's it's a because the UAE and Israel are similar in terms of size and economy. And, you know, it's, they, a, it's they, an extraordinary. It's an extraordinary development, which many of us were busy working inside of before it was public. You know, it was once described several years ago as the wet, worst kept secret in the Middle East, the relationship between the Emirates in Israel. Now it's out in the open. But the, the reality is that I think most people misunderstand how important this is and what a huge game changer it is. From the very onset and even before, I've been active at our crowd 
in uh, hopefully leading in this, you know, historic rapprochement or historic normalization. And the reality is that we quickly moved to hire a team led by Emiratis in the Gulf, led by Dr. Sabah al-Banali, who runs our operation there. We're making investments in the Gulf. It's not just about Emirati money meeting Israeli startups. It's about Israeli investors investing there. Our companies are busy working on joint ventures. And when you take these two entrepreneurial societies, and I'm saying uh, deliberately two entrepreneurial societies because the Emiratis have built this incredible you know, uh, state, very, very modern, very, very far thinking, whether it's sending missions to Mars or working on artificial intelligence or building food security with next generation food technology. The Emiratis are worthy partners, okay? And they they get it. And what we, what we don't fully understand is that what has happened is that a sand curtain has essentially dropped, okay? It's like the Iron Curtain. Back when the Berlin Wall fell, the world changed. And no matter what people want to do in terms of reestablishing, you know, those bad old days, it's not going to happen. Right. In other words, there is openness in the heart of Europe that will never change. And that's what's happened now in the Middle East. And people don't get it. This is not just a temporary blip. This is a historic trend where Jews and Arabs will no longer be known for their fighting, but be known for their cooperation and their joint leadership of the world. And if you look at who the two countries were, who were really way out there early days in terms of vaccination, it was the UAE and it was Israel. If you look to the future of what UAE and Israel and soon others in the neighborhood as they join, okay, will end up doing, it will be remarkable. And people will look and say, you know what? This cradle of civilization, this center of the world is going to be known not just for terrorism or killing each other or endless fighting, but going to be known for reconciliation for the children of Abraham getting back together again. It's brilliantly named. And I and I think that it's not just something to be proud of as a Zionist or of Israel or, you know, but it's 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 important for the world to understand this. And what I've seen actually is that people from Germany and Japan in particular who understand what uh, economic energies get released in this kind of reconciliation. They have noted what's going on. They want to invest in it. And I think that, you know, uh, the UAE Minister of Economy, Abdullah El Touk, has said that he believes there will be $1 trillion of economic activity between Israel and the UAE over the next decades. I don't think he's necessarily wrong. I think it's a very, very big target, ambitious, aspirational, but it gives you an idea, at least in economic terms, of how big this opportunity is. John, I want to ask you this. Israel and the UAE are close to the southern tip of Europe, to Cyprus, to Malta, to Sicily, to Spain and Gibraltar, not very far away. 
you say that the EU is a permanent openness that's not going away anytime soon. Of course, we're in the country of Brexit here in the United Kingdom, uh, which has put a little bit of a spanner in the works of that openness. But nevertheless, uh, they are still uh, Britain's biggest uh, trading partner. How much of a threat, economic threat, if we're talking about a trillion dollars worth of cooperation between the Gulf and Israel over the next decade, how much of a threat is it to the southern tip of Europe and its attempts to coordinate its German and French-led economies. Serious question here. Yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a threat at all. In fact, it's just an advantage. You know, there's this great little um, graphic showing air traffic coming from Europe, how has now all been rescheduled, and they all fly directly over Israel. Because not only Israel now, as a result of our ability to, you know, transit Saudi airspace, you know, we've cut an hour to two hours off of our trips to Asia. But now Europe literally used to have to go around Israel if they were going to fly over uh, uh, Arabia. You see these hundreds of flights just going right as they should go, okay, over Israel and the Arab countries as one unit, okay? And when you look at this and you realize what's gonna happen when there are fast trains, which there will be built between Dubai and Israel, where you use this land bridge as an alternative way, you know, uh, in addition, not instead of the Suez Canal, okay, which is pretty backed up at the moment, but the, you know, one of the key problems of the world is logistics and the ability now to have logistics transit this land bridge in the middle of the world is a huge winner. When the uh, Middle East or what's called MENA, the Middle East in North Africa, becomes a richer, more prosperous market as a result of this uh, coming together of Israel and its neighbors, that benefits Europe. It doesn't provide a threat to Europe, okay? And in fact, this becomes a great backyard for Europe to invest and to take its rightful share of the fruits of this, of this uh, incredible development. So in my opinion, the opportunities here far outweigh the threats. The European Union have got to get with the script, I think, of the Abraham Accords rather than the Oslo Accords, though. There are some political um, complications connected with the European Union as well on that score, certainly. Um, but, John, I wanted to ask you about the profound new reinvigoration, I think, of people who are just outside of the Abraham Accords. You just mentioned how Saudi airspace and Israeli airspace is now unified. It could be argued that Jordan <laughs> was the first Abraham Accords country in its way um, because of the peace deal with Israel in 1994. And of course, its airspace is now open courtesy of the Abraham Accords. So we're already starting to see countries around the halo, Saudi and Jordan, of course, who are, of course, peace partners, but Saudi in particular coming on board. Um, are we going to see in the next year, two years, five years, 10 years, the Sunni leaders of the region, Saudi Arabia, becoming Israel's Abraham Accords partners? Look, I, I think that you're going to see it 
blossom to include many partners. And inshallah, you know, Be'ezrat Hashem, God willing, the Saudis under their, you know, uh, uh, new dynamic leadership, I think will be, you know, part of uh, uh, much activity in this area. But I would like to make, make sure that your listeners are aware of what's going on in Morocco. Morocco is a huge entree point for all of Africa, okay? And Morocco is completely committed to the Abraham Accords, tremendous business going on and opportunities there, again, especially for Europeans to work with the Moroccans and the Israelis together. Indonesia is going to be the next big one, in my opinion. Watch that. It's the largest Muslim country in the world. And and watch them who already engage in Israel, uh, you know, under the, the cover, if you will, become open. And more importantly for me personally are the Maldives and the Comoros, okay, who there's been a lot of talk that they're going to be the very first. And the ability to fly three and a half or four hours nonstop to vacation in the Maldives, that's what I want. I want to be able to hop into an Emirates plane at Ben Gurion Airport and land in the Maldives and, you know, be there in time for lunch. Okay, I, I think that's going to be exciting. John Medved, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It was great fun. I look forward to seeing you again soon. You bet. Thank you, John. Israel's Scale of Nation on Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Our Crowd, a better way to invest in Israel's startups. And while you're on, did you catch these episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State? Press the subscribe button. Scroll back for Deborah Feldman, author of the Netflix smash drama hit, Unorthodox. I was very young when I sold my book and I was a nobody, right? I had no resume. I had never published anything before, not even a short story. Um, and everybody kept telling me, you know, you're 22. You're lucky to even have a publisher that wants to take you on. I had had 25 rejections from other publishers. Um, so it really felt like I was being given that last chance. And everyone said to me very clearly, you don't really have much choice here. You need to trust people who know better than you. And so many, many decisions were made, which were probably smart commercial decisions. I'm sure, you know, that I didn't really have a say in. And I've, you know, I, you learn to live with that. Um, this is, I think, the cost of, of accomplishing something like this when you're very young and you're inexperienced. Ex-foreign affairs and diplomatic TV correspondent, now best-selling author Tim Marshall, on the power of geography. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and, and seek to... Uh, seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromise is a beautiful word. Danny, the Mossad commander and the extraordinary story of the Red Sea spies. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I know, I think I, I never told anybody. Danny, this is very, very beautiful. And I, <laughs> this is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. And the inside story on the making of Fauda. It's a special unit very special unit that actually Israel created in order to avoid mass casualties. You have to go inside a difficult and a crazy places in order to, to pick and to take just one terrorist instead of bombing a whole uh, neighborhood or something like that. So you risk, risk your life in order to do that. You have to be an amazing actor because you're going to be an undercover. 
and you have to go inside the territories with different language, different body language, different clothes, different smell, everything. You have to be an amazing actor and a very cool guy because there is a lot of things that happening around you and you have to avoid all the noises and just concentrate on your the thing that you've been sent to do. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish state and be first to hear the next show by subscribing now. Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook. And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review. That really helps bring more listeners to the show.